0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 172, Plants in Space. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, all kinds of experts about their part in America's space exploration program. Today's guests are from the scientist category, and you may have guessed, we are talking plant science. To explore space with human beings, there are some hurdles to jump that just aren't there for robotic missions. you got to provide air for your humans to breathe, water for them to drink, food for them to eat. Now, you've gone food shopping. Imagine the space you would need to store all of the food that it would take to feed a crew of astronauts on a mission to Mars that will last four years and with no grocery stores along the way. We've checked. Sustainable human exploration means having a way to provide food without bringing it all with us. And not counting on having food replicators, like they have on Starfleet vehicles, we need another way. Fortunately, we have scientists who've been working on this challenge for years, and today I get to talk to two of them about our progress. Dr. Joya Massa works on space crop production for the International Space Station and future missions at the NASA Kennedy Space Center, where she led the science team for the in-space validation of the veggie experiment hardware, and now leads an interdisciplinary group studying how both fertilizer and light affect the flavor of crops grown in veggie. She's also involved in education and outreach programs related to plants in space and works with other scientists to get their plant experiments to work on the station. Dr. Annalisa Paul is the director of the Interdisciplinary Center for Biotechnology Research at the University of Florida, and she's a research professor in the Department of Horticultural Sciences there, where she studies the responses of plants to novel environments with a focus on the environments related to space exploration. She's performed 10 experiments in space over the past 20 years, as well as in analog environments on aircraft, suborbital vehicles, and extreme terrestrial environments in the Canadian High Arctic and in Antarctica. So, time to find out the latest on how plants will impact our future in space. Here we go. Minus
1: high,
0: second, County. Mark. It's pretty obvious that we send astronauts out to space. We have to provide for their needs. We have to feed them. And on short missions, we do that by delivering supplies to them in spaceships. Why is that not the answer or, or maybe not the whole answer when we send astronauts out on longer missions like to the moon or to Mars? Annalisa, Paul, what what do you think?
1: Well, the easy answer for that is that plants are the only things that will actually allow us to explore past the limits of a picnic basket. If you um, go to another place as far away, whether that be the moon or Mars, to, to live, that means not just be a tourist to visit for a short period of time, you need something that you can take with you that can grow and propagate and allow you to sustain your life there. And so... Plants are the reason. Plants are the things that we can do that. They recycle our environments. They provide us with food. They gather the resources from uh, the surfaces that we visit. Yep, plants are the things that we need to do that.
0: You're saying that plants are providing more than just food. They're they're necessary for, for other parts of this environment, but we can't just bring the food that we need to satisfy that
1: no, not at all. The uh, first for one reason is that you just physically can't bring enough with you. I mean, think about um, the Voyagers that, uh, that went to, in the Pacific Ocean back in the Polynesian exploration eras. They didn't pack up their, their vehicles with everything they needed. They brought the things with them that they could propagate when they got there.
0: Plus, they needed that space in order to bring home the riches that they would find.
1: Perhaps.
0: <laughs> uh, Joya Massa, I, I assume you agree. Why is it that we have to have bring plants with us on these missions of exploration?
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with Annalisa. You know, one of the things about the packaged diet, I mean, the packaged diet is excellent. Um, You know, the astronauts right now, they eat about 180 different foods and another 20 or so, you know, condiments and beverages. But when you store that diet for a long period of time, and and we're going to need to store it if, you know, we go on a Mars mission, we may actually have to send some of the the packaged food ahead of the crew. And so it might even be sitting on the planet's surface, you know, before they even launch from Earth. And if you're storing that for a long duration, the the quality and the nutrition of that food degrades. So even in the near term, even in a pretty short mission to Mars, we can't guarantee that we're going to provide all the nutrition that the astronauts are going to need. And you know, the quality is really important too. People get kind of tired of eating the same thing, and so it's got to taste really good. Um, So plants, I think, are going to be a really great way to provide the nutrients that people need and provide some dietary variety and, and, you know, interest, um, even in in relatively short-term missions. But, you know, the farther we go and the longer we stay – the only way to really gain Earth independence is to be able to produce, you know, your food and and not have to ship everything. And and plants are a fantastic way to do that. And that's how we survive on
0: Earth. There are a couple of points that you bring up um, about nutrients. Do, Do people in space need, do their bodies need the same nutrients that people on Earth need?
2: Um, you know, in in many ways, yes. Um, You know, I mean, we we have certain nutrients that are required to sustain our life. There are some things that we maybe don't want in as high uh, a quantity as we might get away with on earth um, because of some of the, you know, the the physiology. It's going on in, in response to spaceflight. So, you know, for instance, we don't maybe want a ton of calcium in the diet. We want a, a, a moderate amount, but if you have too much calcium, it can cause um, kidney stones and things like that. If you have too little, it might contribute to bone loss. So, um, you know, most of the nutrients are are pretty similar to what we want on Earth. But, you know, again, with, with the, the astronaut Demographic that causes certain nutrition. So you know the, you know age and and body mass and 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 um, gender. All of those things contribute to what nutrients that you need. And so the human research program re- works really hard to make sure that the nutrition is there for the astronaut. Um, and so when we we look at the plants, we want to make sure that we're complementing. Um, the nutrients that are in the diet and not giving, you know, too much of something or not enough of others. But especially we want to complement those nutrients that might be great in the diet as it ages.
0: It occurs to me that there may be certain nutrients that we get here on Earth from the environment that might not be available to an astronaut in space and that we would have to supplement uh, in order to make sure they get those things that they need that they can't get in the way we do, quote unquote, normally.
2: Yeah, I'm not an expert in human physiology and nutrition. So, you know, I think the, the first one that springs to mind is obviously vitamin D, which we make in, in response to, to sunlight. And I do believe the astronauts supplement their diet with vitamin D, but I'm not sure about the other things. But I, you know, I knew, do know that, that plants make a lot of the vit- vitamins that, that we need. You know, vitamin C is a big one um, that plants make in abundance. Uh, a lot of plants, make this. And, and, you know, if you eat, say, a chili pepper, you'll get as much vitamin C as you would if you were eating a, a fresh orange uh, from Florida or Texas or California. Yeah. So or even more. So, um, so some of the, the vegetables are, are incredibly nutritious. And, and vitamin C is one of the nutrients that does break down with storage in the packaged diet. So that's one that plants are, are, can easily be used to supplement.
1: And another way that plants can help with the uh, supplementation of, of nutrients is that in addition to just making them if you're on a for instance, on a space station or in transit, plants also can capture the nutrients from the environment that we normally wouldn't be able to have available to us. So, for instance, if you think about Mars, everybody thinks, wow, there's plenty of plenty of iron on Mars, so we'll never be deficient in iron. Well, A human can't eat the iron that's on Mars. You know, you can't metabolize it. But a plant growing in a a substrate that contains Martian regolith can break down that regolith and incorporate the iron that is in the, the, the dirt, the regolith, into complexes, organic complexes in their cells that then plant humans can eat and metabolize. And that's the way it also works on Earth. And even in vitamin supplements, you uh, you don't just eat iron oxide to get your vitamin supplements. They have to be complexed in certain ways in order to make them available to your body. And in that way, plants can recoup the the uh, environmental uh, resources that humans wouldn't not be able to access otherwise. So
0: the plants are the delivery system. They extract, in this case, the iron from that soil and put it into a form that your body can process and take it in. So, we do know how to provide nutrients. We understand what astronauts need and we know how to provide them. The question becomes then, do we know how to grow the plants that would do that? And you two have been working for years on experiments that have been teaching us how to grow plants in space. Annalisa, Paul, tell me about some of the things that you have worked on in, in your history, which which goes back into beyond the space station, back into the shuttle program, right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. So our first—my um, uh, colleague, Rob Ferrell, and I had our first— su- a spaceflight experiment back in 1999 on a shuttle Columbia, and uh, since then we have been working predominantly with not crop plants, but with a model organism called Arabidopsis thaliana. And Arabidopsis is a great sort of the white mouse of the plant world, and it's. Uh, we use it because its genome has been completely sequenced. We understand its physiology, and, and so we can tweak the system very effectively. And it's also really tiny. Um, Rabidopsis is quite happy growing on a 10-centimeter petri plate. And so most of our experiments are grown not necessarily in what you would think of as a greenhouse or a soil habitat or anything like that, but rather they're grown on nutrient auger in little tiny petri plates. And um, we've learned quite a bit about the basic metabolic processes of how plants respond to spaceflight by working with these little Arabidopsis plants. We know, for instance, that plants know when they're in space. They respond by turning on and turning off all manner of genes, and we know that they do that to physiologically adapt their metabolism to this new and novel environment. And it's important when you think about it, I mean, space is is totally new. It's totally novel, outside the evolutionary experience of any terrestrial organism. And so if we want to know what a plant is gonna do when it's growing in space or even growing on the surface of another planet, we have to be prepared to really dig down deep into understanding how do you respond to something? You have no idea what that means. And so that's what we've been doing for years, is looking we at have to what those expose stress responses them to look
0: it like. and find out, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, you said that that you've you've seen that they've responded by turning genes off. Uh, what other ways is that all? Mostly the the lack of gravity that they're responding to.
1: Well, we tend to think of it more as the spaceflight environment because there's more to it than just the lack of gravity, um, and we tend to think about this concept of turning genes on and off as a toolbox, and so, you know. What plants do to respond to these environments is they, 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 they dig into their genetic toolbox to find something that will make them feel better, essentially, make them, them adapt better to that environment. And by looking at the patterns of tools that they use, you get a sense for what's important to those plants. So, for instance, we know that plants respond to spaceflight by engaging a lot of what we call reactive oxygen species pathway genes. What that means is um, certain types of stress that plants have on the ground, they engage those responses in space to deal with that kind of stress. They also modify their cell walls when they're in space. And so we see a lot of genes that are associated with what we call cell wall remodeling, which sort of changes the, the, the density and the, the, the flavor of their cell walls to respond to, um, to dealing with an environment that's not Earth.
0: Do we have any sense yet of whether or not those responses impact the plant's ability to provide nutrients to people?
1: Hmm. Whether they, reply, they respond nutrients to people, um, I guess we don't really know the answer to that question. But what we do know is that they do modify the way they get nutrients for themselves. And so... So um, the way that plants respond to, um, for instance, the growth patterns of their roots and um, the way they seek out nutrients as they're, as they're growing is indeed impacted um, by how they express their genes. And we've seen different um, mechanisms by which spaceflight changes that. And so not about how humans get the nutrients from the plants, but how the plants get the nutrients for themselves is changed by spaceflight.
0: I see. Now, Joya, you, actually you and I first became acquainted a few years ago uh, in, in talking about an experiment on the International Space Station and trying to, to figure out how a hardware was going to be able to be used to grow plants in space. Tell me about some of that work.
2: Yeah. So mostly I've been working with a system called Veggie. So Veggie is a plant growth chamber on the International Space Station. And, and indeed, a lot of Annalisa's experiments in Petri dishes have also been run in, in Veggie. Veggie is really a, a multi-purpose plant platform. So you can grow plants in Petri dishes. You can even grow algae in bags. And you can grow um, crops, plants in in different containers. Um, So we've been growing um, so far mostly leafy green crop plants um, and actually started to get, you know, the astronauts to to be able to grow and eat some of these plants. And we also bring samples back to look at the nutrients that you were just talking about, as well as the microbial food safety, because, you know, the ISS isn't just a a laboratory it's really an ecosystem and you have people living there you have their microbiomes and you have the plants and you have their microbiome so you you actually have a, a lot of different organisms up in this environment and we need to make sure that anything that we grow in this habitat is going to be you know safe for the crew to eat so um, what we've been doing with Veggie uh, is looking at, you know, um, comparisons between flight and ground grown plants. And as Annalisa said, there are a lot of spaceflight effects. A lot of it's really um, the environment, things like fluid physics, which is very different um, without convection, you know, uh, and, and without gravity on the International Space Station. So, watering your plants becomes really challenging because. Plant roots need water. They also need oxygen, and and water and air don't mix well in space, and so it's a very different process. So we're looking at, at how all of these things impact how well the plants grow, um, how nutritious they are, and, and, and how safe they are to eat, and even how, how they taste. We've actually had astronauts doing taste tests this past year. We're just getting all of these data together right now, but... Um, the, the astronauts actually rated the plants even more highly than they were rated, you know, on Earth when we sent them for for taste tests. So um, they also, you know, just seemed to really enjoy them. There were a lot of posts on Instagram and Twitter about about eating the produce, and you know, people people seem to really like having that 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 variety and that addition, you know. Um, I think there's some novelty factor uh, to it as well, but just adding that to the, the packaged food—you know—they came up with all sorts of interesting and creative ways to do that, and and we got lots of great comments back from the astronauts about it.
1: So, so Joya, let me ask you: there's there's been a lot of work too on sort of the um, uh, the, the the psychological benefit too of plants on. That you've worked with, isn't that right?
2: Yeah, that's correct, Annalisa. We've been doing surveys um, this past year with the crew on on how you know interacting with with veggie with the plants impacts their mood and their well being and um, things like their connection to Earth. Um, and you know we're we're still analyzing all those data, but in general, it's all been pretty positive. You know, though it varied a lot by crew member. So some people love the plants; they spend a lot of time with them. Other people, you know, they'd eat them, and that was pretty much it. that was their whole interaction. And and so I think it's just. Just like any group of people anywhere, you know, unless you're at a garden club, there's a a vast variety of people's responses to plants. But even the people that didn't really spend a lot of time with them did comment that they thought it was valuable and meaningful to have plants. And and they can see the importance for plants in future missions. So that was great to get that response from the astronauts. Mm
0: -hmm. I think that when they select astronauts, they try to screen out the picky eaters, though, too.
2: That's definitely true. Yeah, <laughs> you you're actually um, can't have dietary restrictions. I don't think um, when, when you're selected, or that is something because because the diet is shared by so many, and and because it's so carefully um, developed to make sure that they can get all the nutrition that they need. That that they, they don't want any picky eaters. But you will eat it, you and do, you will you, like it. Yeah, but you do miss things like fresh, juicy, you know, crispy vegetables, um, because that's not really a texture or, or, you know, um, combination that that you get. So I've heard from a number of crew that they thought, you know, I thought I'd want a pizza or cheeseburger. The first thing that I got back and all I really wanted was a salad. So that's kind
0: of interesting. Yeah. Um, Is it theoretically, could you just, could we grow any plant we wanted to in space?
1: Well... You know, within reason, I think space is always, you always have to think of things in terms of resources, right? And so your resources are limited, so you can't really grow, say, a banana tree or a plum tree. And the reason why I mention a plum tree, and Joya can speak on this quite a bit as well too, is that there's been a lot of work on trying to miniaturize plants and also sort of obviate some of the problems that, say, a fruit tree has of, you know, the only flower once a year and they get really big and et cetera, et cetera. And so um, some of the work that's been done down at Kennedy Space Center has been, in fact, to do things like look at certain mutations in natural mutations in plants that have made them and plum trees is one of these where they're, they're much smaller. They grow almost like vines. They they bloom and fruit continuously. And so now you can envision, you know, having some kind of viney thing growing on a space station or someplace else that would allow you to have kind of fresh fruit. But for the most part, we have not, to my knowledge, anybody, any of us working in this field, have, have come across any... Um, showstopper for growing plants in space. It's a lot like what Joya was saying is if you can manage your habitat, you can manage the water, if you can manage the, you know, the gas exchange, um, that kind of thing, you know, pardon the pun, sky's the limit. You can do almost anything because plants know they're in space. They modify their metabolisms to adjust to it, but they do pretty much just fine.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's amazing how plastic they are in their growth. They're, they're, you know, they can really just, just respond and 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 survive if you can give them, you know, at least the most of the conditions within within a certain ideal range. And, you know, I think what Annalisa is saying it kind of really opens up the possibilities for the development of custom space plants. That will mm-hmm. be dwarf that will be high yielding um, that will have you know a very high percentage of edible um, proportions to inedible materials, um, maybe they don 't need all the structure that plants on earth need because with with you know microgravity or reduced gravity on planetary surfaces you don 't have as much Force that you need to, to work against to hold yourself up, and so all of that material could then be converted into, you know, useful, edible um, nutrients and things like that. So I think there's a lot of potential for for custom space plants in the future.
1: Oh, oh yeah, I I, <laughs> I agree with that completely. Sorry. So one of the things that that I often like to say is that, that plants are absolute masters of their metabolic universe. And they, it's as Joy was saying, is that they're so plastic and they're so adaptable to all sorts of environments and they're very engineerable. And so not only can you engineer the plants themselves you can also engineer their habitats and so you can change for instance the you know the growth patterns the the uh, the flavors even the colors just by changing for instance their lighting regime there's been a lot of work on now that we have such sophisticated LED technology that you can tweak the wavelengths of of of, of the habitat and the very same plant the very same genotype can create Different, different flavor regimes, different color regimes. If you've ever had one of those sort of artesian salads with the little tiny microgreens, a lot of those are the same plants like, like miniature broccolis and things that are grown with different LED lighting to give them either spicier taste or redder leaves or different kind of um, features that introduce variety without having to uh, complicate the, the number of types of seeds and things that you actually bring
0: or to have different habitats to grow each one of them individually, which you, you wouldn't have space for.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: So you're what you're saying if, is that we could, we theoretically could grow about anything we wanted to. We would then make a decision on what we would try to grow based on a number of other factors, the uh, the, the habitat that was required, the space that would be required. You can't grow the great big tree because you don't have room for it, etc. Is that it? Right,
1: right. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that you have to take into consideration is um, the waste material, right? And so everything, the more that you can use of a plant, the better. And so, for instance, let's think about carrots, right? You can eat every bit of a carrot. You can eat the the, the leaves, which is parsley, (laughs) you know, you can eat the root. Um, But if you're growing something like, say, potatoes all you can eat is the tuber. Um, so you have to also balance the pros and cons of what are you going to have to do? What are the resources you're going to have to invest to recycle the inedible biomass? And again, you know, Joya also has done a lot of work with her colleagues down at Kennedy on the, the, doing the biomass equations and what it is that uh, you need to think about before you choose a particular plant to grow.
0: And when we say biomass, what do we mean by that?
2: Yeah, the biomass is, you know, the biologically created material, right? So you have your edible biomass, which is the portion of the plant you can eat, and then your inedible, you know, as Annalisa said, that that has to become a resource to grow the next set of crops. So we have to figure out how to take, say, your your leaves and stems and roots of a tomato plant and get those nutrients back out to grow the next set of tomatoes. Um, but and one thing I'll add to, to what Annalisa said, which you know was, was really summarized everything very well, is another factor for choosing plants is also going to be kind of the mission and, and mission duration. And you know, some plants take longer to mature than others, and. Depending on the different um, phases of, of a space mission, there might be different crops that will work really well. So she mentioned microgreens, you know, those, those small um, plants that you'll find in salad mixes or you'll find them on, you know, on top of your fish at a nice restaurant. Those are really amazing crops. Um, and it's not just one type of plant. There are You know, anything that you can grow, you know, and eat the plant of, you can grow as a microgreen for about two weeks. Um, and so they don't require a lot of resources, but they actually have a lot of flavor and a lot of nutrition, around 4 to 10 times the nutrient density of the mature plant. So they might be a great option if you if you only have, you know, a few weeks in between um, a transition of, to a different phase of the mission, but you still want to supplement your diet with fresh produce.
0: I get the sense that you guys are... are are thinking far enough ahead in this that you're you're thinking about different generations of, of not only the same crop but of also some sort of of, of uh, crop rotation in the fields in order to, to get to the variety that you were referring to before to have different things for the crew members to eat
1: yeah absolutely um, if you think about it that the thing that is the most important in a long-term exploration is to keep things novel to keep things variety, with variety um, if you read any of the old accounts of for instance Arctic or Antarctic expeditions that that's one of the things that is always discussed is how food gets old and tired <laughs> and even even in the most um, um, restricted, Expeditions and stuff—you find the crew members trying to grow tiny plants in their cabins and things, just to have some some green and living thing. Um, uh, Rob Farrell and I have done a lot of work in analog environments in the Arctic and in the Antarctic, and a lot of that has been work with greenhouses. And one of the things that you don't you don't viscerally appreciate until you're actually there is how 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 fantastic and wonderful it is not only to be able to have a fresh salad when the supply ship is three months away, um, but also walking into the greenhouse after you've had three days of a whiteout and haven't been able to see anything, and then you walk into this greenhouse that is alive and breathing and, and, you know, there's moisture in the air and and there's just a bit of home, it, it does something to you, and it evokes this... Just an amazing feeling, and and I'm only half a world away. You know, imagine what it's like when you're on another planet. So it's important. It's important on a lot of different levels.
0: It occurs to me that it, in in some respect, what what I have trouble with in my mind is quantity. Uh, if you put four or, or six astronauts in a ship and, and send them off to Mars, and you think about how much does each person eat per meal, three meals a day plus snacks, and they're going to be gone for that long, uh, how do you provide a sufficient quantity for everybody to
2: eat? I mean, it is it is tough, and you know, and there's not a lot of space to grow the plants, and there probably won't be a lot of space you know until we have say a permanent presence on the moon and on mars so i think a little goes a long way in in terms of having that the the psychological benefit you know maybe you're only going to get one salad a week or or you know um fresh you know a few leaves every day or something but, um seeds are small; seeds are very small and very light, so you can actually take a lot of seeds in and on a mission without taking up a lot of room and. So I think developing a, a kind of a sustainable, renewable growth approach is going to be really important, and then figuring out, you know, the, the scheduling aspects of when to to grow crops and and maybe always having, you know, the availability of something. But maybe I mean you 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 don't want to grow 30 heads of lettuce in a day and then no lettuce for the rest of the month, right? So crop scheduling is is really important, and and that a lot a lot of that goes back to hardware design and volume optimization, and so we actually have a lot of engineers kind of looking at that and, and figuring out how, how we can do that scheduling.
1: And uh, probably m- many of your listeners have seen the movie The Martian or read the book, and, you know, th- those of us in the business just of course love having a hero protagonist who's a botanist, um, but one of the things that also really appealed to many of us in that movie is is this concept of let's do the math, and that's something that is absolutely important to the to the whole discussion, and that's. One of the things that that we collectively do and what will be happening for the future when you do design um, a a true life support system that will be reliant on by astronauts or colonists is the math will be in there in that um, precisely how much area that you need, you know, what are the kind of schedules, like Joy was saying, that you put on? How do you harvest things? You know, what are the nutrients you put in? The... The, the beauty of doing this kind of controlled agriculture is you can control every photon that goes into that system. You can control every gram of nutrient mix that goes in. And so you have a reasonable expectation of what can come out, and you can tweak the system as you, as you go. So it's a really high science this kind of farming. And the kind of farming that goes into this type of equation for doing exploration science translates back to learning more about how we can be more efficient here on Earth for doing protected agriculture in places that, you know, can't do farming in their uh, normal kind of scenarios or or doing um, uh, support for areas that are um, fragile. And so it really has become an interesting loop of learning between the protected agriculture communities here on Earth and the kind of science that NASA and um, other space biology folks are doing. Is um, It's a pretty cool loop.
0: Do, do you have uh, an example or two of, of- some of those things and and how they've been applied
1: some of the some of the stuff that for instance that um that we're working on is um all right, so you want to go to Mars and you want to set up, say, a greenhouse so that there can be things growing on Mars before the astronauts get there. But in order to, to do that effectively, you want to be able to monitor it, how the plants are growing, you know, how the nutrient delivery systems are working from a distance. And so we've been doing a lot of work with remote sensing and uh, sort of telefarming, if you will. And we do this with the analog down in Antarctica at the Neumar 3 station. And Some of that same kind of technology is being used in both greenhouse farming here on on Earth, where people are using specialized cameras that are are able to do different type of um, wavelength uh, monitoring that can tell you about the health and well-being of the plants so that you can use control systems to Oh well, we need a little more nitrogen in bed number twenty-seven, and you can do this all from a from remote access, or you can use drones that are flying over fields, or you know other types of um, imaging from satellite that allow you to monitor crops and monitor um, the environments in a manner that is more energy efficient and effective in keeping your plants healthy and productive.
0: Yeah, um, th- that's. There's a lot of NASA stuff that gets recycled on earth, isn't there?
2: You bet. <laughs> it definitely. Yeah. I mean we can even go to, you know, an older example and and that's LED lighting for crop growth. I mean the you know the the entire first idea of using light emitting diodes to grow plants was NASA funded research at the University of Wisconsin um, mm-hmm. they have the original patent for it and since then it's you know taken off for, for indoor um, horticulture all over the world and now LEDs you know you can buy them on Amazon and, and grow grow mm-hmm. greens on your kitchen counter and, and so it's all it all started with NASA funded research.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh- I want to uh, kind of retrace my steps on something because earlier uh, you had both mentioned about the, the necessity or certainly the the great probability that before we send people to Mars, we would send other things. We'd send some of their supplies ahead. Some of it would land, including, I take it, the hardware to be assembled later or not that would allow them to, uh, to grow the plants. We'd, the greenhouse would get there before the crew would.
1: That is certainly a notion that a lot of people have um, entertained. Uh, I don't think there's anything on the books for that, but there are any number of, um, of notions of how one would do that, whether you would, say, stick it inside a lava tube or something. They would allow it to be totally protected from the outside uh, elements or have a uh, areas of transparency that would allow you to use ambient light. There's there's as many variations on that theme as you can possibly think of. Does anybody have it designed yet? No, but it's like anything. The the notion is there.
2: Yep, it's 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 something being considered. And you know, one of the things that I think there's a lot of work going. You know, as Annalisa talked about remote sensing and and also the the automation and the robotics that would be needed for. Plant care, and you know this comes back to figuring out what what the astronauts will do and what will be um, autonomously done or potentially you know remotely done in terms of plant care, because we're not sending astronauts to Mars to be subsistence farmers, we're sending astronauts to Mars to explore Mars, and so we need to make sure that they have as much time and energy for that as possible but still have the ability to have fresh produce. So um, we're looking at, at, you know, being able to do a lot of these operations um, with with robots and, and, and autonomously. Yeah, good point. And, you know, maybe the crew members will always want to to pick the the ripe tomatoes or the ripe strawberries, but they're not going to want to water all their plants or they're not going to want to, you know, do a lot of crop maintenance and pollination every day perhaps. And so if we have the capability to do all of that um, without astronauts and then have the opportunity for humans to intervene when they want and still be able to enjoy the plants, then it, it stops becoming a chore and it starts becoming a pleasure.
0: Now, do we? is there any sense of whether or not uh, a the amount of time it takes for a crop to grow and mature is the same when you grow them in space as when we grow them on Earth?
1: Well, I can certainly tell you about Arabidopsis now, whether you would consider that a crop or not. <laughs> you can eat it. We've done that experiment. Um, but um, there are some variations. Um, but it's not substantial enough that it couldn't be mitigated typically by, you know, lighting, carbon dioxide variations, things along those lines. Or it just planned around. Right now. I'm sorry, say again?
0: Or, or just planned around. We know it's going to take Correct. X to grow this, so we prepare for it. But it's That's not right. a substantial That's right. difference.
1: That's right. There's, no, there's, there's not a large enough difference between the way plants grow in space or the way plants grow on the ground that is insurmountable as long as you plan for it.
2: Yeah, the, the big difference really comes from, you know, growing in a controlled environment versus, say, growing outside. So if you're growing in a controlled environment where you're controlling your light and your temperature and your moisture and your nutrients and your atmosphere and you control all of those in, you know, the happy zone for plants in and, and kind of an optimum way, then you, you'll grow your plants much much faster than if they're growing out in the field and they're subjected to weather and insects and all of the other stresses that that you know that traditional agriculture crops face. So we can actually get you know many more cycles of crops grown indoor. But we again really even with the, the larger crop plants haven't seen much difference in, in in between flight and ground if you can keep all of those environment at you know aspects in the right zone.
1: Right, right, exactly. In fact, one of the things that the first time we grew Arabidopsis in this habitat called veggie that Joya was talking about earlier, um, when we did the first ground verification type test, the first test preparing for our spaceflight experiment, we were astounded that we were growing mini cabbages, and the Arabidopsis plants were far more robust and far more plump and juicy looking than the ones that we normally grow in our growth chambers here at the University of Florida. Um, and the reason was because we were growing them in the projection of carbon dioxide levels and lighting levels that would be we using on the space station and with the extra lighting and the extra CO2 that these the Arabidopsis plants were getting that you don't get normally here in the growth chambers in Florida they were going to town and it was astonishing and so in that case we had to calibrate Back all our timing because they were growing faster and more robustly than they would grow uh, normally, and it wasn't because of spaceflight. It was because, as Joya mentioned, it was the hardware and the environment in which they were um, grown.
0: There were the ideal growing conditions within that environment, plus no, uh, no enemies, no pests.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point too. You can not only can you control the photons and the nutrients going in, you can also control <laughs> who gets access.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, talk about the next step in development of the hardware. I mean, the the hardware as you've just described is. Is is going gangbusters in some of these experiments and in, in growing plants bigger and faster than than you expected. Uh, what do you have to do in in hardware in order to get a system that you can will be reliable enough to be a, a major to to be supplying a major portion of an astronaut's diet? Well,
2: I'll give a start to that, and then Annalisa, I know will have um, comments on it, but you know we're learning a lot with the veggie and veggie's you know a really small chamber and it's not a very sustainable you know reusable approach to growing um, but uh, we also have the advanced plant habitat on the ISS which is really our plant physiology research tool this is a it's a very complicated controlled chamber Um, And so we're learning lessons from both of these that are driving our future space crop production growth systems, and it probably will not be as simple as veggie because we're going to have some additional aspects of control, but it won't probably need to be as complex as APH because we don't need to control everything to a degree that we would want for research. For a production system, like you said, we'll want those environmental optimization instead of just, you know, all the the potential variables. Um, But the water and nutrient delivery system is really our biggest um, uh, challenge right now that we're dealing with for um, for the plant growth. We want something that will be reusable and that will provide good water and oxygen in the root zone so we're not kind of falling off this, this tightrope. We're walking between kind of a flood environment and a drought environment. And I think a lot of the work that Annalisa has talked about in terms of detection of stress is going to be cr- critical for that. Maybe she can talk more on that. Right, right. So, yeah,
1: that best button on. Um, for, for growing stuff to eat, you don't have to so much worry about, for instance, having things so precisely controlled that as you want to take any of the extraneous stress out of the equation for trying to dissect the microgravity responses. And so for us, doing an experiment for, for research purposes. We want to have the um, stress minimized to the greatest possibility we can. We want to have the ground control unit and the spaceflight unit be as tightly aligned and uh, as, as humanly possible so that the only variable that's introduced into your equation is the spaceflight environment itself. But as Joy says, that's a big challenge because water doesn't behave the same on Earth as it does on on microgravity environment, and so it's a real challenge to mitigate some of those responses. But if you're just trying to grow plump, healthy plants, you don't have to worry about that quite so much, and you can just you can concentrate on tweaking the system sort of in situ. Now, the kind of experiments we do certainly set the stage for knowing what those parameters are because we can, again, look into that Arabidopsis toolbox and see what it is that uh, the plants are trying to deal with. And then we can translate that into trying to grow a mustard plant um, and, and, and tweak the hardware such that we know that, well, you know they're not going to like this. So let's try if we might mod- modify things in this fashion, that kind of thing.
0: Wow. Um, do you think are, do you do you foresee a day was you working on the hardware that you work all the way up to replicators
1: <laughs> well you know they're getting pretty close you can put carbohydrate and mush in and get printed pizza out or something along those lines but um yeah as as big of a Star Trek fan as I am I think that's a bit of a stretch.
0: Yeah, well. Yeah.
2: You know, but I do think the food system is is probably going to be pretty complex, you know, when we're living on Mars. I mean, it won't be a replicator. But, you know, right now the the folks at NASA are assessing all the different possible space of of food system. And while I I think that plants are going to be a big part of that space, There's some really interesting things out there, you know, like the the cellular agriculture, um, you know, and and looking at... Synthetic meat or dairy or, or eggs because we're not going to be taking cows and chickens to Mars and so mm-hmm. can we use microbiology and cell culture to, to, to get some of those things uh, you know and then things like um, 3D printers for food and I I mean it's it's a, it's a really incredible and fast changing space so I, I really look forward to see what's going to happen there.
1: Yep and and also don't forget. A- again, how malleable plants are that you can indeed engineer them to make things that, that you like. I mean, it's not exactly a replicator, but you certainly can engineer plants for different flavors, for different types of carbohydrates, different oils and things that can greatly expand your capabilities to have a diversity of um, food objects that, um, that is beyond what we typically think about when we go to the grocery store.
0: It's so important to the, to the future success of, of these missions, and uh, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it. I appreciate your taking the time. Thank you very much. Annalisa Paul and Joya Massa, we appreciate you joining us today.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah,
2: thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: Uh-huh. Never used to. Welcome to space. There is so much to figure out to pull off a mission of sending human beings to Mars. And feeding the astronauts is just a part of it, and not a small part. But you know that already, especially if you've been keeping up with our Mars Monthly series. The October episode, number 164, Eat Like a Martian, touched on some of the same ground that we discussed today about the role that plants will play on these trips. It's intriguing to me to realize the depths that scientists and engineers have to go to as they design and produce the systems and the hardware that'll be needed to support human beings when we finally send them off to destinations so far away that the missions will take literally years to complete. You can keep up with the latest online at nasa.gov. Search for Artemis and Moon to Mars. I'll remind you, in fact, you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. And when you do, use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or suggest a topic for us. Uh, Indicate that it's for Houston, we have a podcast. You can find the full catalog of all of our episodes by going to nasa.gov slash podcast and scrolling to our name. You'll find all the other NASA podcasts right there, too. The same spot, nasa.gov slash podcasts. This episode was recorded on August 13th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Gary Jordan, Nora Moran, Belinda Polito, and Jennifer Hernandez with their help in the production. To Nicole Rose and David Brady in the Space Station Program Science Office. And to Joya Massa and Annalisa Paul for helping us get a better understanding of the importance of plants for future space exploration.